Sorry, guys, I'm all disoriented this morning. That song hit me this morning. Whatever happened to you in a fresh way? Thanks for your patience with me. In my notes here, I have good morning, parentheses, smile. It's good to be with you. So it is good to be with you. I love worshiping with this church. Uh, if you haven't, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Daniel. I, I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders of this church. I have the joy of preaching from God's word this morning. And we find ourselves in, in the beginning of a study through the book of 1 Samuel. So if you have your Bible, uh, open with me. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. I've got, we've got some on the, on the bar here in the coffee room. You can also use a fake Bible on your phone if that also is more of your preference. I prefer a hard copy, I think, for many reasons. Number one, I mean, you just look holier. <laughs> Sorry, my filters are way already gone this morning. But secondly, it keeps us, it helps, I think, in our distracted American minds where we need something to pop up in front of us every 10 seconds uh, to stay focused on God's word. Like we're just, we're taking away an unnecessary distraction by, you know, what's on an iPhone, it's, I don't know if it's even two clicks now, it might just be one click. I don't know the new ones if they were kind of like swipe down. I don't have one of those phones without a home button, so I don't know how it works, but the point being, Let's open God's word, right? Segue aside. First Samuel chapter 7. This morning I'll be looking at verses 3 through 14. I had a note here to, uh, before we got into the passage, to thank those who helped last week. Uh, last week, Aaron Dameron, who is kind of the leader of our setup team, got up and asked, called the church to help with teardown. Just a little bit helps. Uh, if you can just take a couple things from the back there up forward. If you don't know, we, we rent space from the gathering place, Foursquare Church here, and they use the space on Sunday night for youth group, so every week we've got to flip the stage around for their gear. Uh, so if, if, if you would like to be on the setup team that comes on Saturday night, I'd love to introduce you to Aaron, but uh, for, the, for the church, I think it would be great for us to continue to instill a culture that we serve, right? That we're not just here simply to observe and consume, but to par- participate and serve. So thank you for those who served last week. I was really encouraged. Uh, I know myself and Will and Ben and Carrie and those who usually help uh, afterwards to get done so fast. It's really a testimony to the power of community, the power of team effort, getting things done. So let's make that a habit and keep doing it. Uh, Otherwise, you're going to have to keep listening to me talk about this every week. So does that sound like a plan? Okay, now let's get to the Bible. Enough of my words. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Now up to this point, the Philistines and the Israelites have been in a battle starting like, that started back in chapter 4. Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They drew up in line against them. They had a first battle. Israel lost. They lost 4,000 soldiers. And when the troops come back to camp, the elders ask, why has the Lord defeated us this day? Why would we lose? I thought we were God's people. 
Let's bring the Ark of the Covenant here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. This is their idea. This is their, their, their battle plan. Certainly with the Ark on our side, we will not lose a second time. But the people bring the Ark from Shiloh up to the battlefield, and the second battle is even worse. There's a great slaughter. They, they don't lose 4,000. They lose 30,000. Both of the priest's sons are killed, and on top of that, they lose the Ark. So the people are devastated. Eli, who was the, 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 priest, the head priest, the one who was helping minister and, and lead Samuel, dies. His neck is broken as he falls backward. Kind of a depressing end of chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, the ark goes around from Philistine town to Philistine town. And it causes havoc. Right? If you remember that, that story in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5, they bring the ark and they set it next in their temple to Dagon. And the first night, the... the the statue of Dagon has fallen face down in front of the ark. And they think, you know, they don't know if they, they may question what happened, but they put the, the, the statue back up. The next morning, the statue's not only fallen face down again, but the hands are cut off and the head's gone. And then the, the city starts to break out in tumors. There's a great panic among the town. And it's kind of like uh, a curse of a hot potato that just gets passed around to these different towns. Everywhere it goes, it, it wrecks havoc until... Chapter 6, the Philistines are done with the ark. They say, let's, se- let's send this back to where it belongs. So they, they get a couple cows and they mount it on a cart and it goes back to Israel. And even as the, the ark comes back, the, the narrator describes that 70 people look upon this ark and they're struck down dead. And it's kind of a crazy story. But if you remember last week, Nathan talked about how the word looked upon is a Hebrew expression that can mean they stared at it kind of in a gloating way. They're viewing it as a sort of trophy. So all of chapters 4 and 5 and 6 describe bad things happen when you don't treat God with the holiness and reverence that he's owed. Whether you're his people or his enemies, it doesn't go well for you. And we're coming out of that chapter, from chapter 6 into into chapter 7, where it describes in verse 2, from that day the ark was lodged at Kirit-Jerim, the Philistines had brought the ark back to the Israelites, and a long time passed, some 20 years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That phrase lamented can mean long for. It it means grieved after. It seems like they are experiencing after it might have, you know, some 20 years passed, that they were actually starting to experience grief and mourning over their sin. They were actually experiencing maybe a genuine heartfelt sorrow over what had happened. And this leads Samuel to say, if you are returning to the Lord... So in other words, he's not necessarily sold on if these people are real. If they had really, are they really feeling sorrow, right? We all know those kind of instances, and maybe we've done this ourselves, where we're really just giving lip service, whether we're just apologizing or someone's apologizing to us, and we know, you're not really sorry about this. It seems to be Samuel's way of testing, is this real, is this genuine? He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. Another way of thinking about this is Samuel saying, if you are repenting, if you are truly turning from your sin, then three things. Number one, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. Now, the narrator later clarifies a verse later in verse four that the people put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Now, these would be the kind of the male and the female Canaanite goddesses. Uh, the Ashtaroth were were probably fertility 
goddesses. And ironically, in my studies, according to ancient uh, mythology, and, and some historians believe that, that Baal is actually an offspring of Dagon. I thought that's fascinating. So Baal, Dagon was the father of Baal, which means the Israelites were worshiping the God that the ark had humiliated. Hands cut off, head cut off. Essentially, the Israelites were worshiping the son of a loser. <laughs> I mean, to put it bluntly, foolish, right? And Samuel's calling the people to get rid of those gods, all the idols, all the false gods, remove them. That's the first thing. Number two, direct your heart to the Lord. Direct is another way of thinking about aim or intend to move your heart towards God. Like, intend to move it on a purpose plane towards God. Now, when we think of the word heart as, you know, maybe Western Americans, we think about heart in kind of the center of emotions and affections, right? You say, I love you with all my heart. That's a phrase, a phrase that we have. But in the, the ancient world, the, the ancient Hebrews, the heart in that historical cultural context encompassed much more than the center of feelings or emotions or affections. The heart was the center of logic, the center of morality, the center of decisions. The decisions were made with your heart, right? So we might think, okay, you, maybe you found a, a spouse with your heart, but you do math with your head. Right? The Hebrew would say, you do math with your heart, you love with your heart, you buy a car with your heart, you decide what's good or wrong with your heart. Does that make sense? The heart was encompassed much more. And, and Samuel's saying, direct your heart, your thoughts, your love, your decisions, your morality, your decision-making is all to be based and directed toward the Lord, aimed at him and aligned with his word and his will. And then finally, number three, serve him only. The sense in which this word is used is worship. Some translations even use that word. Worship the Lord only. Obey him. Keep his word and law. So three things. Rid yourself of idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And in essence, what Samuel's doing here is he's calling the people back to the first commandment that they had received from Moses on Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. The first commandment that says, you shall have no other gods before me. God was not to have an open relationship with his people. It was an exclusive relationship, a completely devoted relationship. It was worshiping God alone or, or not at all. There was just no in-between. You could kind of add other worship to God and still be faithful. God was not pleased with that. And Samuel calls them to repent and kind of explains for them what that would, repentance would look like. And it seems like the people are starting to listen. They're starting to learn. They're starting to do what Samuel says. And you see that repetition in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and Ashtaroth and served the Lord only. In verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and they drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This, this rite or this ritual of drawing, pouring out the Lord and drawing it out before the Lord seems to be a, a similar practice to that of fasting, one that is, that is symbolic of an act of self-denial. It seems to be a, a way that the, it was a symbolic allusion to the people's hearts being poured out before the Lord as they were confessing their sins to him. And it seems that the people are sincere here, right? They're fasting, they're confessing sins, they're saying we have sinned against 
the Lord. And the three acts described here all show that. The pouring out of the water, the fasting, and the public confessions seem to show that the people are not just giving lip service to God. They're actually coming back and repenting. They truly want to show their sorrow and repentance. But verse 7, the Philistines hear this. And the people of Israel that, hey, gathered at Mizpah, and the, Lord of, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. You can try to imagine what the Philistines might have been thinking. All the Israelites are gathered at one place. This is a great time to attack. Maybe they're doing some sort of weird religious rituals. This is the time, guys. Let's, let's end them. Maybe they thought, okay, all these Israelites are gathered here. Maybe it's their way of kind of scheming an attack against us. So we better hit them before they hit us. But whatever the case, the Philistines' army marching forward invokes fear in the Israelites. They're afraid. But notice the key difference of how they respond here versus a couple chapters earlier. In their fear, the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. A lot different than how they responded earlier, right? They responded earlier in chapter 4, let us bring the ark of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. You can see they were trying to treat God as a pagan, uh, God to be manipulated and invoked. They were trying to force his hand. But here in this moment, they are realizing apart from God's work and intervention, they are hopeless. All they can do is pray and ask Samuel to cry out to God on behalf of us. Different response. And you can imagine there is a different outcome. Verse 10, as Samuel was offering up the burnt Excuse me, verse 9. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. This whole burnt offering would have been a sacrifice of atonement. Sacrifice of atonement was uh, a way to, to make things right, make sin right. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and drew them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. The first time this word is, is used, threw them into a confusion, it's actually used when God throws the Pharaoh's army, the Egyptians, into confusion. You see what the, the parallels that's happening here. God is thundering from the heavens with a mighty sound, and they're thrown into a confusion. So like God here is kind of doing the heavy lifting. He's the one who's doing the work. He's routing them before Israel so that in verse 11, the men of Israel went up before Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as, far as below beth Car. So God did the heavy lifting. Israelite kind of comes to mop up. God's the one who delivers. God's the one who does the work. God's the one who's bringing the victory here. Samuel cries out. He answers. And then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. There's a couple parallels that I want us to, to, to draw from in regards to what the narrator is doing in this moment. You remember, where was the battle that was described earlier in chapter four where the people want to bring the ark from? It's actually called Ebenezer. Which is cool, in this moment, when, when Samuel's calling the Ebenezer, this stone that it represents God's, God's victory on their behalf. The, the word Ebenezer just means stone of help. So it was Samuel's way of saying, don't forget what the Lord has done. Remember his mighty act on your behalf. And see 
the great difference between trying to use God and treat him with irreverence versus bowing down in worship before him, confessing sins and humbling yourself before God. Totally different outcomes, right? That you see that compare and contrast there? And all of this ties back to, as we described earlier, at the beginning of Samuel, Samuel's mom prays his prayer that introduces key themes that we see throughout the book. And see if this sounds familiar, uh, Hannah's prayer. Chapter 2, verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. That prayer that, that says that God will exalt and honor the humble, but he will bring low the proud. This is coming to bear on this moment. Not by might shall any human prevail against God. It's highlighting the complete sovereignty and supreme rule and ultimate power of God. And the narrative describes that they had peace and they conquered these towns. And in verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath. Ekron and Gath were border towns on between Israel and, and the Philistine land. So this would have been towns that were easy and susceptible to attack, but they had peace. And then it says, there was also peace between Israel and the Amorites. And the Amorites were the people that were native to the promised land when the Israelites had come in. And they had peace, essentially what the narrator is saying, they had peace outside of their borders and they had peace inside of their borders. God granted victory. He restored them. He rescued them. And he established peace in this moment. And, and that's where we're going to stop. The next part kind of gets into Samuel and we get into where the Israelites demand a king. And I want to stop there and examine what, what does this story here teach us about God and his relationship with his people. If you have a handout, we, we like to go through those three questions every week to frame our sermons. And I think they'll be up on the screen here as well. Uh, the first question is, what does this story proclaim about God and his relationship with his people? You know, sometimes we, we, we read the Old Testament or we try to read the Old Testament and it doesn't make sense to us. We have a hard time studying, and, and how do we glean out of this? And these, these three questions are intended to be used as a tool to show you how to draw meaning out of the text. Right? We don't want to put meaning in. There's meaning there that we want to take out. And what is this story teaching us about God and how we might relate with his people? Well, certainly we see that God is gracious and merciful, right? Even in the midst of all their rebellion and turning from God and worshiping other gods, God still saves them, right? He still answers Samuel's prayer. We certainly see that it shows the need for a mediator. The people are calling, coming to Samuel and asking him, don't stop crying out to God on behalf of us. But I think the story proclaims probably more clearly, at least I, the one I want to highlight, the story proclaims that God's people must approach him and relate to him on his terms. They can't continue to view God as some sort of pagan idol that can be manipulated. They must view and approach him as who he truly is, utterly unique and sovereign and holy and set apart. In the story, the people, they don't try to force God's hands. They don't treat him with a reverence. They don't try to manipulate him. They, they seem to be learning from their mistakes or have learned through God's discipline. The Israelites realize their helpless condition apart from God's help. They respond in desperation, begging Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel even does this by 
setting up a stone, naming it Ebenezer, the, the stone of help, helping the people that this stone is a reminder of what God has done and also to show you the difference of versus you kind of presume and treat God one way and you, you treat him with repentance and confession on the other. The story shows us that rescue comes after repentance and that God's people are in need of rescue. God's people are in need of being called to repentance. They're in need of being delivered from oppression and it is only God who saves. God's people are in need of rescue and repentance. And, and this is an offensive truth. If you have a worldview and perspective that human beings are basically good, isn't it? Because when, you, when you're calling someone to repent, you're essentially saying, you're wrong, you're bad, you made a mistake, you're in the wrong. There is, seem to be a, a prevalent worldview and among major religions, a, a teaching that says, we are basically good people. And at worst, we're neutral. We're kind of like a rough piece of wood that just needs to be sanded. Maybe we're like a dull piece of silver that just needs a little bit of work and then we'll shine bright and beautiful. It's just garbage, isn't it? This is the basic doctrine of the self-esteem movement, right? Look within. You're basically good. Just draw out that good stuff. Think good things. Be happy. This is not, however, what the scriptures teach. Ever since the beginning of the creation of humanity and Adam and Eve's decision to willingly disobey God, to desire and prefer other things over God, all humanity has been born in sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And it's not that with a little bit of help, we can make things right. It's like we are utterly lost and confused. We are twisted and broken. We are fallen and rebellious. We're not just okay people who need a little boost from God and we got the rest. We are totally corrupt in need of radical transformation and freedom from the bondage of slavery. And the cross of Jesus Christ shows us how wicked we truly are, doesn't it? To use a construction illustration, we don't need a simple addition. We don't need a new bathroom or new fixtures. We don't need a new bedroom. We need to be gutted and totally transformed from the inside out. Now, maybe if you're inflated with pride and, and self-righteousness, that, that will be very offensive. But I think if we're honest, by the power of the Spirit, we see, by God's grace, I've made a mess of things. I'm a screw-up. I am rebellious. I can't obey God even if I wanted to. And we don't have what it takes within ourselves to fix the problem. We need outside help. We are in desperate need of God to be rescued. And it seems like God had to take his people through this discipline and this punishment for them to realize that. That apart from God, they have nothing. They are in desperate need of God. And he requires exclusive relationship. He's not a commodity. He's to be the center. He's to be our singular devotion, the only one who is worshipped in our life. Now, if we think, well, that's, that's the God of the Old Testament. He's angry. He's jealous. He's naggy, maybe. Jesus is different, isn't he? Luke 9, 23, and he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. They only get harsher, actually. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now tell me that's not an exclusive call. Jesus demands exclusive worship and love and devotion. After Peter preaches the gospel in Acts chapter 2, the the people who heard this message of the gospel, this message of Jesus' life and, and his work, they say to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? And you can imagine maybe if, if Peter was in, uh, in a modern day or he was a modern day preacher, he might say something like, oh, you're not that bad. Just say this little superstitious prayer. Actually, you're not that bad. You don't need to do anything. Just, just listen. Peter doesn't say that. He uses the, a word that, that Jesus repeats continually, repent and be baptized. Repent. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. This is, in fact, the first words that, that are recorded in the book of Mark from the mouth of Jesus. Jesus comes onto the scene, and Mark records the first things Jesus is saying. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. This shows God's people are in need of rescue. They are in need of repentance. Getting rid of other idols, as Samuel has described, aiming our hearts to God and serving him only. And as we consider our story in 1 Samuel 7 in light of the larger story of the Bible, that we've seen the the grand narrative of redemption in the scriptures, this story points forward to our great need for Jesus. Samuel in this story is, is a prophet, isn't he? He's calling the people to repentance. He's speaking on God's behalf. He's also a priest. He's serving as a mediator between God and the people. He's also serving as a judge, as as recorded there. He's a faithful judge. And as previously mentioned, when Jesus steps onto the scene, he calls people to repent. And Jesus does not simply pray to God on behalf of the people, and he did not simply call for repentance. He purchased it, and he made it possible by giving up his very life. Jesus cried out to the Lord on behalf of his people, as the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is able to save to the utmost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is the greatest mediator and intercessor. We look at this nursing lamb who was offered as a whole burnt offering in the story, and this is a foreshadow of Jesus, the great lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus, who was that atonement for sin, that burnt offering given on behalf to make atonement for God and man, that man could be right with God. We look at the story and we see this this rock, this Ebenezer, saying saying that God has helped us to now, and we see this foreshadows Jesus, the great rock, the greatest help, our greatest Ebenezer. As we look at Jesus's finished work on the cross and we see that his empty cross and his empty tomb are the the symbols to us, the, the sign that God is our help. Till now, God has helped us. And we look at Jesus, our Ebenezer. We look at the cross. We look at the empty tomb and we say, God has helped us. And this is what I will put my hope and my confidence in going forward. Not in myself, not in my dependence upon my moral upright and my performance, but in Christ alone, in his finished work, in his life, death, and resurrection. God's people who look at Jesus and what he has accomplished can say, like Samuel says, In Samuel chapter 7, God has helped us. God is our help. So let's consider what this story calls us to do. This is how we seek to answer that third question in your handout. What admonition or exhortation does this story 
offer. We see how it highlights the character of God, how he relates to his people, how God's people are in need of repentance and rescue. We see how this story points forward to Jesus and our great need for a mediator and an intercessor and a burnt offering and the Ebenezer. And now let's see, what is this story calling us to do? Exhortation and admonition are, are words that mean, what is this story calling us to do and not to do? What encouragement, do this thing and don't do this thing in simple terms. And I believe, simply put, that this story calls us to repent and trust in Christ alone. Depend on him fully for the rescue and redemption of God in Jesus. Now, for those in this room who might be skeptical or curious about the claims of Christianity, this story is an invitation to repent for the first time. It's a warning not to approach God on your own terms, but to come to him on his terms. We don't treat God like we treat sellers on eBay. I want to negotiate a little bit and get this price down, and this is how much I'll offer, and if, and if you don't meet me there somewhere in the middle, I'm walking. We come to God saying, God, you demand utter and total devotion and worship. I've, I've made a mess of my life. I, I, I want to turn from my sin and trust in you. I want, I want you to be who you say you are in my life, my treasure, my love, my, my joy, my everything. I want you to be the master and the Lord of my life. You come to him humbly, seeking to repent and to turn away from former habits and former thinking and former ways of life. And this is how you become a Christian, repentance and belief in the gospel. You don't, maybe on, on your own terms, you might think, well, if you're more of a self-deprecating person, think, well, I just need to clean some things up before I, I can come and become a Christian. Maybe if you're a really proud and righteous person, you say, well, I just need to do these things on the list and then I'll be good. Repentance of the irreligious and the religious, the proud and the self-deprecating, that we are in great need of Jesus and he alone can save. But maybe you're here this morning and I imagine most of us here are saying, well, I already did that, Daniel. I repented. I'm a Christian now. So... You maybe look around the room and think, okay, who might be a non-Christian here? They really need to hear this. And I, I don't think that's wise to do because I think the teaching of the scripture is that the Christian life starts with repentance and continues with repentance. It starts by confessing your great need for him and it continues by continually confessing your great need for him. You become a Christian by, through the power of the Holy Spirit Seeing your sin, being convicted of it, receiving Jesus as truly he, how he, for who he truly is, trusting in his finished work, and continually trusting as you fight with sin, as you fight with the unbelief of your heart, the, the lies of the enemy, the doubts of the flesh. Friends, let's not be misled or deceived by false teachers, that, that you can become a Christian through any other way, through Maybe you're a Christian because you vote a certain way or you attend church events or you believe in God or you can clean up well on the outside. A true Christian is one who has repented and is being continually transformed by the power of the Spirit. If you have your Bibles, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to read this with you. Maybe, you. maybe you don't quite believe that this is a true reality. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, I think the clearest demonstration of this reality 
First John is a little book at the very end of your Bible. And this demonstrates the reality that repentance is not just a one-time event in the life of a Christian, but it's a, a lifestyle that happens at conversion and continually happens through maturity and growth. John says this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Meaning you can't just give God lip service. There is a certain way and a manner that your life is to be characterized if you truly are a Christian. Verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's a dynamic that is happening here that when you first trust and confess and believe in the gospel, because of Christ, his righteousness, his, his perfection is imputed, is given to you by grace, through faith, that you are counted perfect and righteous, sinless. That, that's how God actually views you, as sinless. Through Jesus, you are counted righteous. But at the same time, there is a reality that when you believe in the gospel, all the sin in your heart and all your idol, idolatry, all your, your rebellious ways are not eradicated completely. Or like if you became a Christian and the next day you woke up and you had a thought of lust, the, 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 the proper response is not, well, I guess I'm not really saved. Or, darn it, I thought this was supposed to solve everything, right? No? Okay, maybe not. The reality is we're not... And we know this, I think, if we have confessed Christ, that we're not perfect. We still struggle with sin. We still struggle with laziness and pride and gluttony and lying and lust. But the way that we grow is not just simply pretending that it doesn't exist, but by confessing it continually and repenting. Paul says this in Romans, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, the reality is that our conversion and our justification, we are dead to sin. We are declared righteous. But how we grow and continue is we become who we are. We consider ourselves dead to sin. We kill sin. Paul says later in in Romans 8, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See the focus and the responsibility that's given to all of us in our need for continually repenting, continually confessing sin, killing sin in our life. And what this passage does here in John and, and in Paul and in, light of, in line with what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 7, all God's people, not just those who are first turning, but all of God's people are to be marked by a continual repentance, ridding their hearts, their lives, their, their thoughts of idols, false gods. Idols are those things that we look to for significance and, and meaning and purpose, those things that, that if taken away from us, we would be completely devastated that we rid ourselves of those idols and worship God alone. We direct our hearts and aim our hearts to him continually, and we serve him only. And and that is something I think that should be done daily, continually. 
And it can look like this. Uh, this. This past week, I have been stressed. I'm in the middle of a kitchen remodel. Things are not going like I planned. I have the desire for control and stability and comfort. I want things to go my way. The kids, I've been a little crazy because kind of our living room and dining room is a mess. We've been eating on a folding table and camp chairs. You can imagine it's not the ideal situation. And this is creating stress. So that just a, a normal, something, a mistake that, that Addison made. I snapped at her. She wasn't sinning against me. She wasn't rebelling against me. She was not listening. I snapped at her. In that moment, I can, I can tell, why, why am I so angry and, and stressed? I, I do some examination in, into my heart. It's because, well, my, my idol of control and security and, and pride, my God is not being worshipped. And I'm, I'm believing that, that I'm more in control. So when things don't go my way, that really frustrates me, and, and I'm taking that out on others. And, and you repent in this moment by saying, God, forgive me. I'm not in control. And I'm so angry and self-centered and I lack faith and I'm so disobedient so quickly. And you've been so gracious to me and patient with me and, and I'm not doing that with others. Forgive me. Change my heart. I want a heart that, that is at peace with your word and with your plan and with your, the way that, that you have orchestrated and, and purposed my life to go. Help me, Father, to live in line with your word and your way. Amen. As simple as that. And, and that's something that we can do daily and, and throughout our day. And, and this is something that I think should, should mark us as, as believers and as believers who are growing. Friends, do we confess sins to one another? Sometimes we can fool ourselves simply by just by talking with God and thinking that I've, I've fixed this. But we don't confess it to others because... Deep down, we, we, haven't, we don't really want to get rid of it. Or, or we're letting the sin define us and our image and our standing before God. And we're not, we're not allowing the righteousness of Christ to define us and, and have the freedom of confessing sins. Do you know the kind of freedom that, is, that you can experience when you confess sins to one another? Have you experienced that? Why do we hide? Friends, let's not deceive ourselves by simply giving lip service. Let's not deceive ourselves simply by just by praying about it alone, but let's confess our sins to one another. Let's actually seek to know one another and be known by one another. And friends, if you don't have a community or people or friends like that, let me encourage you, this is a, this is a, this is a church that, that wants to be about actually doing what the Bible says confessing our sins to one another, having a community of people that love us and can identify idols in our life and call us back to the truth of the gospel, not because they want to shame us and make them feel bad, but because they love us enough to tell us the truth and call us back to Christ. Let me encourage you to, this morning to reflect upon your own life and, and your confessions of sin and, and how often and how regular of a discipline and practice that is in your life. How often you confess sins to one another and, and those in this church and in this community. Let us pray for God's help and resolve to be a people who continually are coming to the Lord and worshiping him only. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I pray that by 
the power of your spirit, that we might be a people who seeks to grow in holiness and love, that we seek to grow in the character of Christ, that we seek to grow in, in the love for Christ, in love for one another, in love for this world. Father, forgive us. We have sinned, and we sin so often, much more, I think, than we'd like to admit. We are continually wanting to turn from you and trust in other things for meaning and acceptance and satisfaction and purpose and and delight and value. But Father, who is worthy? Who is more worthy than you? Who has helped us more than you? Who is more faithful than you? Who is more satisfying than you? Father, would we not be a people who simply give lip service to you and sing some songs and go about our week kind of void of your presence and your power in our life, but may we sing songs that our hearts truly experience and mean. Father, as we sing, even help us to to realize in our own hearts the incongruencies where we don't really mean what we say. And Father, change us by the power of your Spirit. Transform us into the image of your Son from one degree of glory to another. Help us not to boast in ourselves on how great we are, but to trust and look into the cross and see Jesus crucified. Father, we love you. We thank you. We offer our voices and our lives and our offerings, our time, our talents for your service. We are your servants here to do your will. We thank you for your great grace and love and mercy towards us. Amen.